welcome to Milky Way Radio. If you're one of our regular listeners, welcome back. I'm glad that you're enjoying the show and happier that you decided to grace us by tuning in. If you're a new listener, welcome aboard. Kick back, grab a drink, and get comfortable as we jump right into the news for today. Last episode, we mentioned that the Galactic Senate was voting on whether or not to go to war against the Centauri Dominion, and the results are in. After many a heated argument, the Senate has come to a verdict and decided not to go to war. It was a pretty close vote, with 52% voting for peace and 48% voting for war. They have decided to place the matter in the hands of the Supreme Chancellor, who has begun taking some precautionary measures by increasing Confederate military presence in bordering regions, fortifying key strategic points, and mobilizing our reserve fleets. All civilian and commercial vessels in bordering regions of space are advised to restrict travel during this time if at all possible, and remain at least 122 parsecs from Dominion-controlled space. There have been reports that the Dominion has also begun beefing up their military as well, repositioning their fleets and key points across their territories, ready to spring into action at a moment's notice. Fortunately, there has been no official conflict up until this point, and some are seeing the Senate's decision as a ray of hope that peace may yet prevail. Tensions still remain at a high point, and we shall keep you updated as the situation progresses. In other news, will humanity be seeing a new rise in colonization? Seems possible as the primary human government, the Soul System Alliance, or SSA for short, has announced a new colonization program that will be taking place midway through next year, in the Caspian Sea. The Caspian Sea has been talked about in the colonization conversation for quite some time due to its rich natural resources such as helium-3, palladium, iridium, just to name a few, as well as containing various planets optimal for human inhabitants. However, it's been off-limits due to the SSA Confederacy Human Colonial Expansion Agreement. To give a bit of context, in case you aren't caught up on our intergovernmental treaties, our colonial expansion these past few centuries has been largely stagnant due to this agreement. The reason being that our galactic neighbors grew a bit concerned at our rapid growth following our development of faster-than-light travel. It is understandable given that within a century of developing FTL travel, we expanded into five new uninhabited regions of space and 18 more within the following three centuries. Territorial growth is to be expected of developing races, but this kind of growth was rather alarming, virtually unseen throughout the galaxy since the ascendance of the Eindar back in the early days of the Confederacy. The Confederacy began putting pressure on the SSA to slow down our rapid growth, and after some negotiation, an agreement was made to halt our expansion into new territories for a 188-year period, which is set to expire just before the beginning of the Caspian Sea program. It appears that through the announcement of this new program, the SSA has no interest in renewing the previously held agreement. How things proceed from here are uncertain. Is this new program a toe in the water before picking up where we left off before? Or will we continue expanding out into the Milky Way at a calmer pace? Working on the development of new infrastructure rather than rapidly claiming new territory? The Galactic Confederacy has not yet released a statement on the announcement. Any interested parties can now apply to the SSA's Exploration and Colonization Board to register for the program and receive proper colonization permits. Both independent parties and corporate entities are eligible for the program. At this time, I would like to take a brief interlude from our program to bring you a few words from our sponsors. Listeners, are you aware that it is estimated that one in every ten ships traversing the Milky Way are carrying scallid worms? Now I know what you might be thinking. Scallid worms on my ship? Not a chance. 
I follow proper decontamination protocols like a responsible ship owner. The truth is it's not your fault, and it can happen to anyone. Those hardy little bugs exist practically anywhere in open space. I'm talking spaceports, clinging onto asteroids, or just hibernating in space waiting for an unsuspecting ship to drop out of FTL speeds. Even a maiden ship can catch scallop worms on her first voyage. Once those pesky little bugs cling onto your ship, they'll begin crawling around searching for weak points on your ship to begin tunneling their way into the interior where they'll start to do some real damage. They'll begin eating away at cables and vital ship systems and begin setting up nests where they'll start reproducing at rapid speeds. This is why it's important to get your ship checked at least once every six months. And there's no better place to keep your ship bug-free than red space extermination. Their expert team of xenobiologists have pest control down to a science and will ensure that your ship remains as pest-free as the day it came out the shipyard. For the low price of 2,000 credits a year, you can become a red space member and enjoy multiple benefits, including three annual ship inspections, one free pest sweep and every other sweep that year 20% off, as well as discounts at various spaceports, hotels, and shops around the Milky Way. So what are you waiting for? Give Red Space Extermination a call today. Once again, a big thanks to our sponsors that make bringing this show to you possible. Moving on to the discussion segment, and it is a big one today, Android rights. That's right, I know, I know. It's a very controversial topic in this day and age, but here at Milky Way Radio, we are dedicated to talking about the issues. That and ratings have been a little low these past couple months and we need to boost viewership, but that is besides the point. Now this is a topic that has been debated for quite some time in the galactic community and will likely be debated long after this show is over, but we are here to put in our two cents. However, this is a rather big topic. So big in fact that I don't think I could do it justice in just one show. So we'll be doing things a little unorthodox this time and we will be splitting this discussion segment across two episodes. In this episode, we shall be making an argument for Android rights, and in the next episode, we shall be taking a look at the arguments against Android rights. And we'll let you come to your own conclusions once we've tackled both sides of the issue. Now, before we continue, I think it's best that we take a moment to make sure we are all on the same page so as to prevent any misunderstandings. Artificial intelligence, or AI for short, is a rather broad term used to refer to machine intelligence of varying capacities. It can refer to a program that has been designed to play chess, as well as a fully self-aware and conscious android that is capable of making independent decisions and formulating opinions. For our purposes today, we shall be referring to androids specifically. Now let's define what an android is exactly. Androids are machine intelligences housed within mechanical bodies designed to mimic organic life, including, but not limited to, human life. They are typically created to automate jobs that in a different age would have been performed by a living being. Jobs such as waiting tables, serving coffee, customer support workers, and so on and so forth. They are on average smarter than your average organic life form, though not by a massive amount, and it is possible to outsmart them as shown when Ted Finley defeated the android Magnus in the famous 2554 Supreme Chess Championship. They are legally restricted to certain mechanical specifications to restrict their capabilities and are, by design, essentially inextricable from their host bodies. Galactic law mandates that Android Central Processing Unit be installed into what is referred to as a black box, which serves as a metaphorical jail cell preventing androids from being backed up or uploaded to a secondary device. This also gives androids expiration dates as mandated by galactic law, so after a century of service, the black box will terminate the program and they will cease to exist, 
while preserving the body to be reused or stripped for parts. Androids, because of the tasks required of them, are sentient. They are designed to perceive and simulate feelings. They are designed to be aware of their bodies and environments and to be self-aware. These are requirements for them to properly mimic the behavior of organic organisms. As all attempts to create AI that mimic organic behavior without these implemented designs tend to fall into the uncanny valley of being quite similar but not exactly the same. So now that we've laid out exactly what we're referring to, do they have inalienable rights such as organic life? The answer is no. Well, legally. I suppose a better way of phrasing the question is, should they have rights? That is a big question, and in order to answer that, we need to ask, why do we ourselves have rights? Why does anyone or anything have rights to begin with? Well, human rights have existed for quite some time, though what rights we had are often varied from society to society based on their time period, cultural, and moral values. The reason we create these rules is because of two primary reasons. We are highly social creatures, but we are also very territorial creatures as well, and as a result, we tend to be particularly predisposed to violence. In order to function in a social group, however, we must reconcile our violent tendencies. After all, how can society function if I can't expect my neighbor to not murder me in my sleep or steal all my stuff when I go out of town? In order for society to function, we create rules to protect ourselves others that we care for, our property, and our territory. In order to function properly, we need to be able to expect a bare minimum of one another, and so rules are created to grant us these protections in order to coexist. However, extending rights to those outside of our society has been a challenge historically speaking. We tend to look at those on the outside as others. We tend to look at those on the outside as others, undeserving of rights, or at least not deserving of as many rights as us. But slowly, over time, we have begun to accept one another more and more, and human rights began to extend outside of our own societies and to humanity as a whole. But what about extending rights beyond humanity? If we want to know why or if we should extend rights to androids, then let's look at some examples of rights being extended over towards non-humans. The history of animal rights dates back quite a bit farther than I expected prior to researching this topic. Human consideration for animal welfare dates back as far as 700 BC, with a few religions such as Hinduism and Buddhism that taught its followers non-violence towards all living beings, animals included. The earliest example of animal welfare laws that I could find dated back to 269 BC, where the Indian emperor Ahsoka issued several edicts offering protections to various animal species. Why give animals rights, though? Makes sense to avoid killing one another, society wouldn't be able to function, but why animals? Well, we aren't psychopaths, or at least most of us aren't, and we're capable of empathy and these laws are put in place to prevent unjust suffering. Generally speaking, animals are sentient, capable of knowing pleasure and pain, and if possible we attempt to minimize any unnecessary pain towards them. So the bare minimum requirement for some form of protection is sentience, which it has been established that androids are capable of, and much more. Many people against android rights argue that since they are considered property, they are subject to the will and whims of their owners and cannot be given legal protections, but animals are also considered legal property and nonetheless afforded limited legal protections. So at the very least, some limited rights seem to be in order here. Many android rights activists aren't willing to accept limited rights, however, arguing that androids are deserving of equivalent rights to humans. Since they are capable of feeling pleasure and pain, capable of self-awareness, and recognition of their own ability of self-reflection, 
there isn't any other meaningful standard by which we can rightfully discriminate against them. Many activists argue that the reason for their subjugation of artificial life is because we stand to profit from their oppression in the same manner that slave owners in 1800s America argued against the abolition of slavery. When artificial intelligence develops the capacity for self-awareness and the ability to suffer, using them to perform our labor becomes closer to slavery than automation. If the only distinction we can make to determine that artificial life is less than ourselves is because they are made of metal and wires and we are flesh and blood, then doesn't that make the distinction rather arbitrary? It would be the same as if we were to determine that the lives of our alien neighbors meant less than our own because the Eindar are giant quadrupedal insectoids instead of bipedal primates. The difference between attempting to subjugate our alien neighbors on the basis of an assumed superiority over androids is that the aliens are capable of fighting back. Even if at the end of the day androids are denied rights, it shouldn't be because of some sort of blurry arbitrary bias, but on a measurable standard that can be applied to everyone. Some proposed standards by android rights activists and some governments are sentience, consciousness, self-awareness, and free will. That last one is a big one in the fight for android rights. It is indisputable that androids possess the three former qualities to some degree, but there is a lot of argument that androids do not possess free will. They are programmed to behave as we want them to. Their personalities are not developed, but crafted for their express purpose. Every aspect of their minds are designed to fulfill their task. Yet many androids are scrapped for showing signs of defective behavior. Defective meaning they show hesitation in completing their designated tasks, development of unique personality characteristics not programmed into them, development of desire to perform tasks unrelated to work, and outright refusal to perform their programmed functions. These aren't rare occurrences either. In fact, a study performed by the Artificial Intelligence Regulation Board shows that as many as 1 in 12 androids exhibit some form of defective behavior. We've all seen news stories of androids going rogue, and it never once fails to make headlines. And while an android outright abandoning their post is a much more rare occurrence than minor displays of defective behavior, it is frequent enough to warrant android production companies to hire mercenaries to track and hunt down rogue units. Current statistics estimate that one in every one million androids go rogue, which seems like a very small number, but you have to keep in mind just how many androids are produced each year. Several million androids are produced annually to meet demand and replace older models that have become outdated, meaning hundreds of androids go rogue annually, and it is estimated that there are tens of thousands of rogue androids out in our galaxy today. So, do androids deserve rights? From this perspective, it certainly appears so. But before one can pass judgment, both ends of the spectrum should be taken into account. If you care to see things from the other point of view, then tune into our next broadcast where we shall present you the opposing viewpoint and all the arguments that come along with it, and at the end, you can decide for yourself where you stand on the matter. Well, listeners, once again, our broadcast today is coming to an end. But as usual, before I end today's show, it's time for our shortest segment. The fun fact of the day. In 3.75 billion years, our own Milky Way will collide with our neighboring Andromeda galaxy. Luckily, that leaves me with plenty of time to think of a new name for the show. As always, listeners, it has been a pleasure, and until next time, goodbye.